Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. All right, lots of great stuff coming up here on the GM Shuffle. The Mid-Season Awards. That's right, the Lombardi's Mid-Season Awards. We'll talk with the MVP, Coach of the Year, Biggest Disappointment, Coaching Predictions, all that, plus some great games this weekend, including Buffalo taking on Arizona. I would like to mention, though, off the top, there's a lot of fans here of Michael Lombardi at MLB Network. Jim Serator among them, who's a great producer. I call him Gene because his name is Serator. sounds like Sterator. So Gene Serator, Jim Serator, tells me, how much he's a fan of the podcast, et cetera. And I said to him yesterday, how about Mike dropping the Uncle Junior in North Carolina? Like that, that I think was something that not enough people appreciate. In case you missed the last episode, Mike pointing out one of the great lines everyone, Uncle Junior says, I, I'm the one knocked here that Tony's away from owning North Jersey. I mean, that's that's gonna be one of the funnier lines ever that I've heard you use on this podcast, Mike. And I'm that, and I'm that knocked hair. <laughs> He's so good at it. You know, when when Millie goes away, she's visiting the grandkids up in Boston. When she goes away, I just go on a Sopranos marathon. I just kind of watch a few of them, and I, you know, I kind of go. And just some of them are just, you know, like when he tells Mikey Palmese, "Relax, we're not shooting a western." You know, like where does he come up with that? But then I think about it, you know, and I think that, you know, when 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 I used to go see my mother, she would always be watching westerns like there's there was and i was talking to a friend of mine the other day and i was asking him about his father who passed away and he said he would go down the basement and his father who was italian used to love to watch old westerns like it it, it was just so perfect that old italian people love to watch westerns i mean here we are you know like when dean martin was on a horse she did like seriously he doesn't look like a cowboy right you know <laughs> and yet th- there was some uh, preoccupation that the, this generation had with Westerns. It's really kind of remarkable. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's that underlying writing that goes into The Sopranos that that becomes so appreciative, at least by somebody like me who grew up in that, with that, ge- close to that generation. I mean, it's just kind of remarkable how Chase was able to just weave them in. Well, I have a friend of mine who's watching from the beginning. Thank God he's finally gotten on this. He's binge watching. He just got to the episode where Livia Soprano dies, and I said, how about the way they use Public Enemy, the great James Cagney movie that Tony is watching at the end of the last episode? Remember, he has that tear in his eye. Yeah. I mean, what a moment that is. And I know there was this one criticism, one writer said, he goes, do you really think like, most of these guys, most of these wise guys are not particularly pop culture savvy? Like, do you really think Tony Soprano watches black and white gangster movies? They go, absolutely he does. Are you kidding? Those guys want to be James Cagney, Humphrey Bogart. They've all watched The Godfather. They've all watched Goodfellas. I thought that was a very poignant moment when Cagney in the movie comes home in a box and Tony's watching it thinking of his mom. Pretty underrated episode, by the way. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Sam Giacano used to do that. In fact, I'm, I've now gotten cooked on a couple, a back on the JFK assassination kick. I mean, Chris told me to re- read this book, Blood. It's about the JF. It's the RFK perspective of the JFK assassination, and it goes into this whole Sam Giacano thing. And he's in his basement cooking sausage. And I mean, it just it looks like he's Uncle Junior down there, and you're just imagining him. Why? And they all. How about when they used to watch the in the Sopranos? Used to watch when that mafia guy. The beginning of season two, when the mafia guy comes on, and they all are like making fun of him when he's talking about leaks in the in the mob. I mean, of course they knew it. I mean, like they're 
regular people too. They're watching the same thing we're watching, you know? <laughs> that was a great episode. I always battle those guys, the guys trying to investigate these wise guys. All right, let's get to the midseason awards. Uh, Sopranos, the greatest show of all time. Uh, running back right now, who is your MVP, Alvin Kamara. I'm reading from Michael's uh, latest article here in The Athletic. As always, you can read Mike's work there. Kamara is leading the Saints' high-powered offense in rushing yards, averaging 4.9 yards per carry, as well as leading the team in receptions with 60. The next leading receiver on the Saints is Emmanuel Sanders with 30 receptions. Michael Thomas has only played in two games this year. Kamara is the Saints' offense. From start to finish, everything the Saints implement begins and ends with how teams must handle Kamara. We're going to talk more about Drew Brees and the arm strength in a second. But first and foremost, Mike, you've been beating this drum for a while here. Kamara is not just a running back. He's a weapon, much like Dalvin Cook. Yeah, and I think this, and I really believe this. I think that if we're going to, if the MVP is only going to go to the quarterbacks, then we should just change the name of the award. Then we should just change the name of the award. Like, because it, look, Patrick Mahomes is certainly deserving of the MVP. There's no one better at the position than he is. Russell Wilson this season, you know, last couple of weeks, he's thrown the ball away, made some mistakes with it typically, but he's deserving of the award. Aaron Rodgers this season, deserving of the award. You know, I mean, I actually have some people voted for Josh, like, like some people actually voted for Josh Allen. Like, I think Josh Allen has improved inconsistently, but like, seriously, he's the most valuable player in the league. Like, I think we have to just, if it's going to be just, if we can only give it to quarterbacks, then let's change the name of the award. Because there was a time back in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and I don't want to be the old guy talking about the past because we have evolved as an offensive game and we have changed what we do in terms of football. But in that change, there lies a weapon. And his name is Alvin Kamara, or his name is Dalvin Cook. It, it's it's a it's a player that is uniquely universal. Christian McCaffrey is the same player, right? Can run with power, can run routes out of the backfield, can change the way you play the game, right? And you would think it would be Zeke. You would think it would be Zeke Elliott because one of the reasons I wanted to pay Zeke Elliott as a as, as a if I were the Cowboys, is because I see him as a weapon. However, they don't they don't use him or visualize him the same way that I do, or that Sean Payton does, or that Joe Brady does down at Carolina, or that Gary Kubiak does up in Minnesota. So, to me, it's really if we're going to just make it quarterbacks, then okay, I'll give it to Russell Wilson. But if we're going to make it like who's impacting their team the most? Then I then you you're gonna have to talk about Cal, Dalvin Cook and Alvin Kamara and Kamara to me is sensational. I mean he is truly the reason they're so good on offense and Sean Payton's ability to utilize his skill set. I mean he averages almost five yards a carry, right? I mean, they've scored 244 points this year. They're remarkable on third down. They're 51% on third down. Why do you think that is? Because Drew Brees has got a rifle back there? Of course not. It's because Kamara takes a pass, checks it down, and the next thing you know, he's, you know, he makes two people miss, and it's a first down. And I saw the same thing with Dalvin Cook. The, the, the Lions have Dalvin Cook stop for a four-yard four gain. He makes Jamie Collins miss, and the next thing you know, it's a 19-yard gain. Like the two minute drill, they throw a check down to Dalvin Cook. It's 13 to 10. They throw a check down to Dalvin Cook. He comes out of the backfield. Boom, it's a 29 yard gain. Like those are the kind of plays that you can't, you can't find. You know, that the quarterback gets all the credit for the yards, but it's the back who made them. And I just think these guys are weapons and they're not getting recognized enough by the people who vote for. It. And either we're going to change the way 
we have the award or then just make it the quarterback award. I agree that you're right. It's good to give some love to somebody who's not a quarterback. If I had a pick, I would take Russell Wilson. This is year nine. He's finally getting the credit he deserves. He's never received a single MVP vote, and he's transformed from a guy who had a great defense and a great running game in Marshall Lynch to now being the reason they win. Now, I know the game against Buffalo was not pretty. I know they lost against Arizona, but to me, in a good division, Wilson's been great. But that does not dismiss any of what you're saying about Kamar and how important he is, especially when you look at New Orleans, which dovetails to my point about Drew Brees and you saying, do you think he has a cannon? No, he doesn't. Brees has only thrown eight passes between 21 and 40 yards this year, which led to this quote, which might be my favorite quote of the year from Drew Brees. This is on arm strength. This is Drew. Who are the ones making those statements and do they know anything about football? And do they know anything about playing the quarterback position? In most cases, I probably say they don't. This this reeks of Mike, and you've seen this. I've seen this my whole life. Oh well, did you ever play? You've never been in the pocket. You've never understood this. As Keith Oberman once said, if that's the case, then you can't criticize anybody unless you do their job. You can't criticize a doctor for malpractice. You can't criticize the president of the United States because you've never been the president. I thought Breeze's comments came across as petty and childish and disappointing, and I think we all know it. When everyone's saying it, we all know it. Of course, his arm strength isn't the same. What do you think we are, Drew? Stupid. Come on. I mean, all he's got to do is say, hey, look, I don't have the same velocity I once had, but I think I'm more experienced. I know where to get rid of the ball. I've got good playmakers everywhere else. I get them the ball, and they take care of everything. But you're right. But look, why isn't it that way? You know, do you think ESPN's going to put anybody in the booth that didn't play? That did, You know, those guys, I mean, we had to see Lewis Riddick take a fake punt from Tommy Two-Point on Monday night. You know, in the middle of a two-minute drill. I mean, they went to that. I mean, like, I love Lewis. He was on our 94 team. It's great. But did we need to see that play at that point? Does that make him, you know, it's like, does that make him valuable to the broadcast because he played? I mean, seriously, like, like, you know, this is the, the, you can't, you know, those people that are talking about the politicians because they never run for office, they're not allowed to critique. I mean, seriously, it's just... I get there. there's a level of knowledge, but here's where I have a real issue is Breeze knows the whole game. I get that. I don't have a problem with that. He understands what the defense is trying to do. He knows the protections. He knows the offense. Does he know what happens upstairs with the scouting and all that? Of course he doesn't. Does he know how to build a team? Of course he doesn't. But he knows the but, – but most of these guys – that do the games because they played and that's what the networks think is the most important quality is they talk about the only thing they know, which is what they did when they played. And it would be, it would be hilarious. In fact, I text a guy after the Monday night game when they were talking about throwing the ball outside when throwing the ball outside of that game was not something the Patriots wanted to do. They didn't give a shit that, that Greg Williams wanted them to throw the ball on the outside. They were too busy eating up clock, keeping the ball away from the Jets, and running their controlled offense. They were winning the game. They weren't trying to run plays that the defense was giving them. It's a whole different point. But the worldwide leader and the people that hire for, for commentators for the air, they don't really get that. And so Breeze is rationale for it, it makes all the sense in the world because that's how we've been trained. You have to play to know the game. Seriously, you have to play to know the game. Well, I played high school. I played college. Okay, I didn't play pro football. But, you know, I think Drew Brees' arm strength is lacking. Do I think it's affected him as a quarterback? Of course I do. Do I think he's overcome it? Of course I do because he's got Kamara over there or he's got Michael Thomas and he also has a great offensive coach. You put him in the Washington offense and tell me how he's doing. Right. And that leads to the greater point. And this actually goes back to you giving Kamara the MVP. Why make more, more sense? If you look at the NFC right now, 
If I send you the Seahawks, you and I agree, they're not winning anything unless they clean up that defense. I don't care how great Russell is. Packers are at 6-2. and two. Again, I don't know about their ability to stop the run. And, and after Devontae Adams, where's your receiving core? The Saints are now 6-2. and two. The Bucks are at 6-3. and three. Uh, Other teams, Cards at 5-3, and three, Rams at 5-3, and three, Bears 5-4, and four, and so on. Of that list, the team that I might trust the most right now, Mike, in the NFC might be New Orleans. Like, after the Saints' performance against the Bucs, I'm like, you know what? The Saints might be the best team in the NFC. I like the Steelers most, the AFC, unbeaten, obviously, overcame that challenge against Dallas. But it goes further to point Kamara's value because New Orleans, I think, might be the team I trust most right now in the NFC. No, no doubt. I mean, look, they've beaten Tampa twice. Tampa has three losses. The New Orleans has beaten them twice, right? We know Green Bay has beaten New Orleans, but they're vulnerable. You know, Chicago, I mean, the hell, they couldn't get first downs against goddamn Tennessee's bad defense. Seriously. Come on. You know, and so there's nobody from the East that stands ground. You know, the, the West probably is going to bring three teams to the playoffs, at least. I mean, Atlanta actually is probably playing as good a football as any of these other teams are playing right now. They are. They're, they're, what Raheem Morris has done with their defense, the way they're attacking the quarterback, the way they're utilizing their athletic skills, even though they can't cover in the back end. The offense has been really good. You know, when they try to not give the ball to Gurley all the time and they use the other backs, they're much better. So Atlanta looks like, and Carolina, I think Joe Brady's done a really good job. I mean, they take Kansas City down to the wire in that game. Look, I think there's a lot of parity in this league. And the NFC doesn't have a true dominating team other than New Orleans. And then when you beat Tampa twice, you know, Tampa, I don't know what Bruce Arians' commentary is going to be this week, but the reality of it is, is they're not better. You're not better than the team if you lose to them twice. That raises the issue then of coach of the year, and we go to the Steelers right now unbeaten. You're going with Mike Tomlin. This is a great coach. Listen, this guy is an unbelievable coach. We've all done this. As you wrote in The Athletic, Tomlin has been able to do something no other Steelers head coach has done in franchise history by starting the season 8-0. His team has been strong on the road, beating first-place Tennessee and division rival Baltimore in back-to-back weeks. Tomlin has the kind of team that can compete against the best of the best in the NFL. And as long as Big Ben Roethlisberger stays healthy, they should be challenging for a Super Bowl bid. He's one of those guys, Mike, I, I think initially I looked at Tom and I go, okay, he's a great motivator, right? Raw, raw guy, seems impassioned. The players love him. But I think he's a lot smarter than I realized. Like, tactically, I think his team makes good plays. They know how to punch as well as counterpunch. And I couldn't agree more on Tomlin getting your kudos. No doubt. I mean, guy went to William & Mary. He's no slouch, right? The guy's a smart guy. And he, and he knows how to motivate his team. And he prepares his team. And they play to the level. And they kind of have his personality. I think McDermott's really considered, should be considered for this award. I think Sean Payton at 6-2, and two, has done a remarkable job with the Saints, considering, you know, Breeze's commentary this offseason, you know, how he's had to handle that, keep his team together, the Michael Thomas thing, and then how he's calling the game. I mean, it's really pretty remarkable what he's been able to do. And then, of course, you know, nobody's going to give Andy Reid credit because he's 8-1, and one, but, you know, it's hard to repeat, and Andy Reid does a really good job. So, I mean, there's a lot of good coaching going on in the league. I think Brian Flores deserves credit for what he's been able to do with his football team. So. I think there's a lot of good coaching happening. There's a lot of bad coaching happening, too. <laughs> we know we know our bad coach of the year will be Mr. Nagy out there in Chicago. Your midseason rookie of the year, you've got Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow. We've seen amazing rookie performances from wide receiver T. Higgins, the Bengals, Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson, Jacksonville running back James Robinson, the Chiefs running back Clyde Edwards-Elaire, and many more. But the two best have been the quarterbacks who have gotten an opportunity to play and displayed franchise-building talent. 
Tell us about Burrow and Herbert, why they are your guys here. Well, you look at the three quarterbacks picked, right? And we got a little bit of Tua last week, and he played much better. Tua last week got faced pressure 25 times in that game. He threw 15 passes when he faced pressure. He threw 25 passes, excuse me, and he completed 15 of them when he faced pressure for just slightly under six yards. You know, so he's going to have to, he's going to see a lot more pressure. I mean, clearly Vance Joseph wanted to see if he could win versus pressure. Now, I think he's going to have to handle pressure from the inside in the paint, and we'll see if he could do it. I thought he really played well last week. But Herbert, to me, is unique in the sense that if you blitz Herbert, you're going to pay a dear price for it. He averages over 10 yards per attempt on whenever you attack him. He's really remarkable. Burrow has been really good in those areas, but Burrow hasn't thrown the ball down. We talk about Drew Brees not being able to throw the ball down the field, but when you look at it, I mean, you know, Joe Burrow has only attempted nine passes over 30 yards. He hasn't completed one of them. And between 20 and 30, he's six for 24. Now, part of that problem with Burrow is he has a hard time in his protection. So, you know, he's not getting a lot of protection. Where he's been really good is on the short passes, the throws between 11 and 20 yards. He's been outstanding. And when he faces pressure, you know, he's he's thrown three, t- three touchdown passes, four interceptions. He averages seven yards a completion when he does that. But this other guy now, this other guy, Mr. Herbert, who clearly is, you know, a different type of talent. There's no denying it. I mean, what he's been able to do when he sees pressure, you know, he's been blitzed 50, he's thrown 59 passes when he faces the blitz. He's completed 38 of them for a 10.12 average, seven touchdowns, one interception. Just flat out remarkable, right? And he's attempted 18 passes over 30 yards, and he's completed six of them for three touchdowns, and he's made three interceptions on those. He is going to throw the ball down the field. He is going to make you defend every blade of grass on the field. And I think that that's why I would give him the rookie of the year. I love Burrow too, but I think Herbert's been just just flat out unique this year. And I think oftentimes that's how you can evaluate a quarterback. You can say, it was that great line you had about Jared Goff. As long as you can check the runners on first and third, he's fine. It's one thing to be able to throw when you've got offensive line helping you. Can you throw under duress? When you're facing pressure, Herbert's been able to do that, and that's why I can understand you're giving him some props. Midseason biggest disappointment, a runaway winner here. It's the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys, as you wrote, Mike, win this award easily. Many thought, myself included, they have the talent to compete in the NFC East and further with all the injuries and the lack of defense, the Cowboys look nothing like I imagined this offseason. They appear poorly coached on defense, out of sync on offense, and with Kamara and Cook carrying their teams to wins, you have to wonder why Zeke Elliott is not doing the same for the boys. Elliott does not look like the same runner he has in the past. And that's, I think, the biggest takeaway. If someone says to me, well, Dak went out, I'm like, okay, I totally get that. Obviously, what are you expecting from Don Finucci here? The defense being this bad, I'm surprised by. Mike Nolan's dead man walking. He's got Tabasco in his eye. But Zeke's the one. I go, wait, why can't Zeke Elliott just run the ball 25, 30 times a game? He's not the same runner, and that Cowboys offensive line isn't the same either. That's the biggest thing to me is the shock that I still would have thought they could win games with Zeke in the O-line, but that is not the case. Right? No, they can't, and they they don't know how to run the ball. They really don't. And I think Zeke Elliott is truly the Joel Embiid of the NFL. Really talented, but not in great shape, and not able to. It can be, he, he, watch him. Does he carry it four times in a row, and you feel like he's not out of breath? I mean, seriously. Like they put Tony Pollard in the game, and all of a sudden, Tony Pollard looks more explosive. You know, now you're not allowed to say that because he's Zeke Elliott, but I mean, I'm a Zeke Elliott fan. I was supporting him. But to me, if I were the general manager of the Cowboys, I want to know why this guy is underperforming. He should be more effective in the passing game. He should be more of a weapon because at the the end of the day, if he's just a runner, 
We can't pay him that much money. We can't pay him that much money. Unless he can impact the passing game, unless he can do things uniquely, and you could say, well, all their problems start with their offensive line. Look, I get that, right? All, all, the longest run he's had this year is 24 yards, right? The longest run. He's got 36 receptions for 6.6. You know, like 119 yards. I've been harping about this for three years. Like at some point, you've got to use him in the passing game. Make them defend him. Like, ask yourself this question. If Sean Payton was over in Dallas, what do you think that offense would look like? A lot more prolific than what we're seeing. I agree, AD. A lot more prolific and what better coached and better coordinated and better prepared to win games. It's not about, that's what was driving me crazy on Monday night. It's not about how do we attack the scheme. It's about how do we win the game? How do we win the game? Yeah, Greg, Greg Williams has given you the outside part of the field. Yeah, their corners suck, but we need to be able to win the game. How do we win the game? How do we do that? And that's what we miss about, that's one of the biggest things we miss as fans watching the football game is the announcers telling us what's actually happening towards who's trying to win the game. It isn't about successful plays in a row. It's about the strategy of what they're trying to do to help them win the game. And we're missing that. And it's gotten, it's gotten so bad, Mike. It's now like changed my opinion of Mike McCarthy. If you'd asked me like six months ago, Mike McCarthy, I'd say, oh, he's a great coach. He's won a Super Bowl. I mean, things kind of went awry with him and. Aaron Rodgers, that happens sometimes. Maybe he overextended himself in terms of player personnel, but good coach. Now I go, you know what? Maybe Aaron Rodgers was onto something. Like sometimes not all coaches can thrive in every situation. I don't want to say the game has passed Mike McCarthy by, but I'm shocked, Mike. I'm shocked this team is that bad and he's supposed to be such a good coach. If there's one thing you're telling us every week, good coaching prevails. All right? Sean Payton will find ways to win. Sean McVay should get paid $30 million a year. Same with Belichick. Same with Tomlin. Well, McCarthy's going to wear this. This can't just be injuries and Dak being out, this has to fall in the coaching as well. It, it, no doubt. I mean, and, and my wonder is, what did you do on the year off? Like at some point, you gotta you gotta decide what your Pete Carroll getting fired changed his life. It changed his life. He went to USC. He he read the John Wooden book. It changed his life. I mean, I mean, McCarthy obviously didn't. He watched McCarthy watched the Untouchables. God rest Sean Sean Connery soul. You know, and he became Malone. He became a beat cop. Like that's what he did. You know, he, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, and now people are complaining. I'm comparing him to Malone because he might be more Barney Fife than Malone. <laughs> you know, he might be, he might be just sitting in the office, you know, hanging out, waiting for, waiting for Thelma Lou to call or waiting for somebody to come in, you know, or Otis to lock himself up. I mean, seriously, like you, you took a year off. I, I promise you, any coach who gets a year off, like most of these coaches in COVID, that you got to come out of this a better coach. You got to come out of this a better coach. You got to look at different ideas. You got to change what you're doing. You got to find ways to improve yourself. Or what are you doing? What were you doing? It's it's embarrassing right now for McCarthy and the Cowboys. Midseason Trevor Lawrence watch. Right now, the Jets hold a slight margin ahead of the Jaguars. They let a winnable game slip through their fingertips on Monday. The Pats came back from a 10-point deficit to win the game 30-27. By the way, all those avid listeners of the GM Shuffle know, Mike said, listen, 10 points for the Pats? Are you kidding? That's way too big a line. Go with the Jets. And the Jets almost pulled off the win. And obviously, they, they covered it because the spread was, like I said, Pats were minus 9.5, whatever it was. Jaguars, you think, are also in the mix, but the Jets won't win two games in the next eight, and that means it's a two-team race right now for Trevor Lawrence. This brings us to the other issue too, Mike, which is college football. We haven't talked a lot of college football, but this week alone, four SEC games, four of them, involving four ranked teams. LSU, number one, Alabama, always a great game on CBS, 8 o'clock Eastern. Not happening. Number six, Texas A&M and Tennessee. Number 11, Georgia and Missouri. And number 21, Auburn, Mississippi State, 
all been postponed due to COVID-19 concerns in the Big Ten. COVID-19 outbreak at Maryland forced the cancellation of its game against number three, Ohio State. The game will not be rescheduled. The, this is leading to this belief now, Mike. Halloween played a large part in the outbreak. Think about this. Guys are out not being smart, having fun, partying. I mean, this is an absolute mess in the SEC this weekend. No doubt. I mean, look, college kids are going to be college kids. What does this mean for college hoops? Seriously, what does this mean for college hoops? It's going to be horrible. We can't, we can't get them to, you know, it, it, the Halloween parties, the Christmas parties, the Val. You know, I mean, I mean, the college kids are going to be college kids, and unfortunately, we don't have a vaccine ready to go right now, and it's going to be really challenging. I, I think this is going to be problematic, and and you know, the Big Ten didn't have any any way to handle cancellations. I mean, the, the Southeast Conference, Greg Sankey's trying to kind of postpone games and move them around and try to come up with the best thing he can. But look, it's just unfortunate. And these parties, I think, are really, it's its really become the bigger issue is that you can't keep kids who are on college campuses. They're not going to just stay in their room and they're going to socialize. But we saw it at the Notre Dame game. I mean, you know, we saw it. It was like they were giving away free communion on the middle of the field. All those Catholics ran down there after they beat Clemson. I mean... It was unbelievable. And by, by the way, unbelievable game. I'm watching. I'm going, you know what? Saturday night, why not? Notre Dame Clemson. I wish Lawrence was playing, but I'll still watch it. Ui Agalele ends up having a great game. I couldn't believe the fact that it actually went overtime. And you're right. That scene afterwards, you go, wait, did we forget about COVID? There's just a sea of people who have seen Rudy all celebrating and touchdown Jesus rejoicing. I go, oh my God, what a disaster this is. Oh, it's so bad. I mean, but, you know, a lot of stuff happened after, you know, I mean, look, you know, fortunately, we, we we think we may have a cure. We think we may have a a vaccine. So hopefully, we'll get that. But I think it's a hard thing to do to let to to keep these young kids from college who are enjoying their life or having the time of their life to stop having the time of their life. That's well said. Couple more predictions, then we'll get into some games. Midseason coaching predictions. We've already seen two coaches lose their jobs this season: Billy O'Brien in Houston, Dan Quinn in Atlanta. And by the way, I echo your sentiments on Raheem Morris. Radio Raheem. Falcons are three and one. They're a different team with him. Next eight games will determine the fate of Matt Patricia, the Lions, Doug Marone of the Jags. And this is you um, quoting your writing. Although I hear everyone in Jacksonville might be looking from coaches to front office. Adam Gase, the Jets. Yes, I know he won't be back. Vic Fangio, the Broncos, and Anthony Lynn of the Chargers. If some of these coaches can alter the second half of their seasons, they may have a chance at hanging on to their positions. I know we bang the drum a lot on Lynn, but seriously, when you've got Herbert and you lose that many close games, how is that not an indictment of the coaching staff? I mean, they've given up, you know, they've given up 124 points in the second half. I mean, they, they can't, you know, they just, they don't make adjustments at the second half and team, even though they build leads. I mean, there's only been one game that they really weren't in it. And that game, the Carolina Panthers, they were executing kind of like a, the, the hook and ladder play and they, and they almost had it for the win. They almost had it for the win. Other than that, they, they've been in every single game and have had a chance to win every single game. And, you know, you could say they just they just can't win close games. I mean, well, Gase is doing the best he can. It's one of the worst. Ro- I mean, you can make fun of Gase all you want. It's one of the worst rosters in football. It really is. It's, it's, it's really bad, even though they had a chance to beat New England. But New England didn't have half their team out there. New England was playing as bad of players as they were. I think Doug Marone's trying his ass off. Again, Jacksonville's not very talented, although James Robinson, you know, he's a really good running back for a free agent. That, that guy is really, really a good player. And they should be happy that they got him, you know, regardless of who they drafted in the past. And then, you know, Patricia's defense is too slow for me. 
And I've been saying that. I mean, they just couldn't handle the speed of the Minnesota. When Minnesota takes them and extends it out and makes them defend the width of the field plus the length, they're too slow to cover it. So I think it's going to be hard for Matt during the next eight games. I think that's going to be a challenge. Vic's got to get his offense in gear. He scored 42 points in the fourth quarter the last two weeks, yet he's fallen short. And then Anthony Lynn's got to win close games. I think there's going to be a lot of jobs. And there's going to be one surprise. I don't know where it will be. There's going to be one surprise. It's at least four for the year. O'Brien, Quinn already gone. Like you said, Marone and Gase are going to join them. That'll be four. Could be seven if you go Patricia, Fangio, and Lynn. And like I said, there's always at least one surprise. Last prediction, midseason Super Bowl prediction. Uh, after eight games, the two teams that appear to be the hardest to beat, this is not the two best teams, but the hardest to beat are the Chiefs and the Saints. I'm a little surprised you're going Chiefs rather than the Steelers. You're going against... Uh, Big Ben and company, but maybe that's because you're believing in Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. I, I, what I wrote was, what team is the hardest to beat? And when a team only has the ball for 21 minutes and gets 400 yards and they score 33 points, that's a hard team to beat. That's a hard team to beat. And because of their explosive offense, they're hard to beat. And I think that the, the Steelers are beatable. They are definitely beatable. They could have lost any one of the last three weeks. They're beatable. They're going to lose but that doesn't mean they're not going to be a good team. They're just, they're beatable. The Chiefs have lost, but they're hard to beat. You, you got to catch, they got to have a bad night for you to beat them. And then when I look at the NFC, we talked about it. I think New Orleans, I think Russell Wilson, I think Seattle will be hard to beat when push comes to shove come playoff time. If they just get anything out of their defense, I think they're going to be hard to beat. It's definitely going to be fun. I will go with Steelers and Seahawks, although I agree with your point about Seattle. I love to pick them. The defense is such a huge liability. Even the great Russell Wilson might have a hard time overcoming, but I'll believe in Pete Carroll trying to figure out some things, maybe adjusting the defense. Ken Norton got to step it up, but I do like the Steelers, and I'm obviously fond of Chase Claypool. After the break, we preview the biggest games of Week 10, including two big quarterback matchups. Josh Allen and the Bills taking on Kyler Murray and the Cardinals, plus Plus, first meeting between Tua and Justin Herbert. All that more coming up after the break. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, uh, Mike, uh, last week, 14-3-1 against the spread on the season. What was your record? How'd you do last week? I was 3-2 and two again, so I ended up, se- I'm 17-15-1. 
So there I am. I'm 64, 37, and three overall. I'm actually now keeping track on my Excel sheet. So I need to, I need to have one of those five and O weeks to kind of get this thing going. I, I need that. That's kind of what I need to have. Uh, you know, I, I posted, you know, I do, uh, Pat McAfee's podcast on Friday. So I, I had Atlanta in that one. And then I posted the other four. But I really think that, you know, I just, it's one of these weeks where you just got to come through. And I'm following the circuit contest, which we had Mike Palm on the pod. You know, there's over 3,000 entries in that. And the line comes out every Thursday. So I, I, I'm thinking, how does that work? I'm trying to study that, but I, I just need a five and a week. I think it's going to happen fairly soon. I love it. Well, listen, you're over. It's like a team. You know, when you're down in the NBA, you're down 12 points. All right, let's just cut the deficit to six. Let's just tie the game and then let's see what happens. You were in a hole early. Now you're over 500. Now you're going to go downhill. By the way, check the most up to date betting lines by using the DraftKings Sportsbook app. You got to do that because I. Uh, Ad, I do that all the time. I check that that app is outstanding. Yes, it's outstanding. You can check. You can see the line movement. It's really good. I, I encourage everybody to do that. Amen to that. Once again, DraftKings Sportsbook app. So, Bills are seven and two. Listen, that was a big time win against Seattle. Josh Allen looked great after four weeks of inconsistency. Brian Dable, good game plan. They they, they gouged him. They certainly had fun against Seattle and Arizona Cardinals right now who are 5-3, and three, and they're kind of lurking. We know how tough that division is, but Kyler Murray's been special. This is going to be, for a lot of people, Murray versus Allen, but that means defense is also going to play a part. Who do you like in this one? Buffalo, Arizona. Not your official pick. Where are you leaning? You know, I, I, this game, I had it as a 1.62 game in favor of Arizona. The line came out at 1.5. Uh, so I'm right there on the line. I, I think, you know, to me... Arizona's a hard team to play. The speed of this quarterback is hard to get used to. You really have to get hard. It's hard to get used to. And Buffalo's a hard team to play defensively. Like, I think that's what happened to Seattle last week. Unless you play Buffalo quite a bit, they're hard to prepare for. They kind of do some unique things. You've kind of got to get ready for them. And, you know, if Josh Allen plays like he did last week with the accuracy, no weather problems in Arizona, obviously, you know, I'd lean towards Buffalo here just because I think they're going to move the football ball. And I think at the end of the day, Arizona's defense will get worn down, but I'll make an official pick. But right now I had it. It's it's one and a half right now. Uh, Buffalo gets one and a half. I would take the points. All right. Next up, San Francisco 49ers at four and five against the New Orleans Saints at six and two. Drew Brees says, my arm is fine. Okay, sure. We'll believe you. Michael Thomas, questionable for this game. Certainly he hasn't been the same impact player because he hasn't been in that lineup. And the 49ers, listen, they've been hard bitten by injuries. San Francisco on the road. Can they upset New Orleans? Well, look, the last time they went down there, a different team, they had 516 yards of offense. They ran for 162. They threw for 354. It was a 48-46 game. So what does that tell me? That tells me, well, look, I don't think the Niners are going to be able to to go down there and put 500 yards of offense up there. I, I, I don't see that. But I do see them being able to keep this game closer than nine points. You know, my line showed it was 587 I think this I think this line's a little heavy against San Francisco, especially considering that they've missed so many of their players of last week. So for me, I, I, I'm leaning towards San Francisco here. Okay, potentially the 49ers pulling off that one. The next one we've got here is the Seahawks and the Rams. So the Seahawks right now is six and two, as discussed. They just don't have any defense, but Russell's been great and their offense is special. They're taking on the Rams right now at five and three. Again, the Rams are one of those flawed good teams that has a great coach. The Rams have actually won four of their last five games against Seattle, and I was surprised to notice, Mike, defensively, they're actually better than you might realize. I know Aaron Donald is sensational, but I believe the Rams have the second fewest points per game allowed. So, Russell on that offense against the 
Rams, their defense, who do you like? Well, you know, the Rams defense has benefited from playing bad offense, Washington, bad offense, Giants, bad offense, Philly, bad, bad, bad offense, Dallas. Well, Dallas to put a bunch of points on them when they played. This is going to be a little different of a game. I think the concerning factor is in this game, you know, the, the Rams are two or four and two against the, the last six games. They're four and two against the, the Seahawks. And, you know, even though Goff has thrown eight touchdowns in those games and he's thrown eight interceptions, he still averages almost eight yards. They don't get any pressure on him to really make it. The last two games they've played last year in 2019, Goff wasn't sacked at all. He wasn't sacked one time. And so, you know, if you don't if you don't pressure Goff, he's going to throw the ball and he's going to make plays. Cooper Cuff's injuries concerns me. You know, I'm up there. I lean towards Seattle here because I don't think I think once again, Seattle's a hard team to beat. So if I'm going to get points in Seattle, I'm probably going to take it. It's crazy when you look at the numbers. I mean, again, I don't understand what you're saying, but Rams are ranked second in defense right now. The Seahawks are 31st. In terms of offense, Seahawks ranked ninth. The Rams are ranked 10th. Again, take that with a grain of salt. Chargers at two and five, the Dolphins five and three. In many ways, you're going to watch this game and say, hey, is this the future of NFL quarterbacking for the next decade? Justin Herbert versus Tua Tungabailoa. The Dolphins are the better team. Flores has done an excellent job coaching them. Their defense is really good. I'm curious particularly to see that, Mike. How does Herbert do against a good Dolphins D? Yeah, and I mean, look, the Dolphins last week, they gave up a bunch of yards. They had a hard time defending the passing game. They went after Xavier Howard in that game with Hopkins. He got called for numerous penalties. You know, when you watch, to me, Herbert makes you defend every blade of grass on the field. He's a real problem. The problem is, if you want to pick the Chargers, you know, just go through the games. You know, they go to overtime against the Chiefs. They lose. They get they lose by five to the Panthers. You know, the Bucks game, they're winning all the way through the first half. But of course, they give up 124 points in the second half. That's why they lose. Same thing with the Saints game. They lose by three in overtime. Jacksonville, they dominate. The Broncos game was inexcusable. No reason to lose. And the Raider game, they're throwing the ball twice in the end zone, albeit bad plays. So you got to think at some point they're going to break through this. But what they're able to do offensively with this quarterback, I mean, they run the ball effectively. Now their run defense is not very good, but that's not going to affect this game because Miami really can't run the ball. This is game's going to come down to Herbert's ability to throw against the, the, the secondary, take advantage of Miami, the corners, the inside corner and the safeties. I think that's the Chargers, but I have a hard time. I'll tweet it out on Sunday morning. All right, fair enough. And we did get one mailbag question, by the way. We can just include this here. This was for the Rams game. This is from Michael O. Can we assume that we will be seeing the ultimate check the runners game from Jared Goff against the Seattle D this weekend? Is there anything we can conclude about Goff if he underperforms this Sunday? That was a question from Michael O. Michael O., if he doesn't play well against Seattle's defense, Ram fans are going to have a hard time. It's a little bit like tonight. If the Indianapolis offense, which has not been very good all year. If they don't play good against Tennessee, then something's wrong. It's like the Bears didn't play good against Tennessee's defense. The Bears have a problem. You know, they should just go up to Betty Ford, admit themselves into the clinic because they got a real issue. They they got they have some issues they need to go through. So I, I would say if Goff doesn't play well against this Seattle defense, I would be surprised. Historically, he's done that. Now he's turned the ball over eight times in interceptions. He's thrown eight touchdown passes. Now here's where the game gets a little iffy. And this is what I think is going to get lost is the Rams like to run the ball and they typically, Seattle, everybody thinks their run defense isn't isn't very good. It, it is pretty good. They can stop the run. Not that it's great, but that's the one thing they can do. They're in an eight-man front and that's when Jamal Adams becomes a real factor. 
So they can stop the run. So it's going to be on Goff to make good decisions in this game. If he doesn't play well, Ram fans are going to be in real serious hurt. <laughs> Look forward to that game coming up on Sunday afternoon. When we come back, Mike and I open up the mailbag, talk about in-game adjustments, and one word for you, boathouses. We'll explain next. As always, you can please follow us on uh, social media. Follow at M Lombardi NFL. That's same as his Twitter handle. You can follow me at Adnan S. Ferk. You can also follow our show's Instagram page at the GM Shuffle. We encourage listener participation. The GM Shuffle at gmail.com. We got this one from Logan in Minneapolis. Gentlemen, why is it that teams don't make themselves more malleable to in-game planning or in-game adjustments? Mike talks about adaptability and adjustments as critical to success and demonstrated best by Bill Belichick. So why are teams so slow to adapt? Why be dogmatic to a scheme? Before you answer, Mike, this clearly reminds me of what happened with Seattle and Buffalo. We ran that clip of Pete Carroll saying, well, we were planning for them to run the ball and then we couldn't adjust once they were passing it. You say, how the hell can you not adjust? This dovetails with what Logan wants to know. Your thoughts? Well, I think there's very few coaches that really go into the game looking for what the adjustments are. Belichick's whole emphasis in the first half is to figure out what the game plan is, you know, and then try to adjust to it. And I think what you saw the other night was a classic example. You know, everybody wants them to throw the ball outside the numbers because Greg Williams is playing man-to-man and you can beat their corners. Meanwhile, he adjusted his game plan because he really couldn't stop. Joe Flacco looked like 2014. So the reason I think you don't see a lot of this is you see very few head coaches anymore. I mean, Matt Nagy's looking at his play sheet. What's he going to adjust to? You know, what are they going to go down and tell the offense or a defense coordinator how he wants to play the game? Nobody's really doing that. I think Mike Vrabel's a better head coach than he is defense coordinator. I think Mike Vrabel should stay as the head coach and hire a defense coordinator. I think he does that job really well. I don't think he's a very good coordinator. So I think that there's a lot of coaches that don't set up the game plan to play complementary football. And when you don't play complementary football, how the offense needs to execute for them to win the game, to the defense, to help the special teams, it's hard to make adjustments. It's just, it's the part of the NFL. As Bill Walsh said, you know, we're only competing against eight. And he was right. There's very few that do it. This brings us to the Philadelphia 76ers, your beloved team. Oh. I'm feeling their city edition uniforms for the season. Your thoughts on the Boathouse Road theme jerseys. I'll try to explain this. I know it's an audio. Uh, podcast here, but basically the City Edition jerseys are the NBA's annual rotating uniform that typically pays homage to an aspect of each team's home city. So Philadelphia getting emblazoned on their jerseys. What do you think? Well, I mean, I love the I love the uh, the Boathouse Row. I think it's awesome. I just didn't ever think it was going to be on a 76er uniform. I mean, the Schuylkill's beautiful. I mean, why didn't they just put it like, why didn't we make the street that Rocky ran down? Why didn't we put it 9th Avenue? You know, 9th Street in Philadelphia with a, with a fire in the trash cans. Like, to say I hate it would be the understatement. First of all, they're the 76ers. When did black get into their uniforms? Like, I didn't even know this. Like, I missed that whole thing. Uh, for me, it's just, for me, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, I, I hate, look, I'm a traditionalist. Like I was watching, Bill and I were watching the, the Steelers play the Cowboys. There was nothing more beautiful than that game because those two teams wore the same uniforms that they won the Super Bowl in. 
You know, it like to me, that's what it is. It's beautiful. I know you got to sell uniforms. You got to have a a different one. But Boathouse Row, like when I think of Philly, I don't think of Boat. I think of Rocky, but I don't think of Boathouse Row. So I would prefer Ninth Street going down there with trash cans, the cheese shop, the pork shop. You know, the 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 the, the chestnuts roasting out there on the open fire. You know, all the animals hang. You know, the 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 the, the poultry hanging on the wall. That's what I think of. Yeah, I was gonna say, just get Pats and Genos out there, man. It's South Philadelphia. Everyone knows the great food that you get. Rocky would have been the perfect one. Like I said, Rocky Balboa, you know, punching up at the sky. That's about as iconic as it gets. Uh, Before we go, obviously a lot of football talk. What are you watching these days? I feel like there's a dearth of entertainment during the week because all we have now is football. So what are you watching while we wait for some basketball to come back? Well, I'm I'm obsessed with, I've been watching JFK again for the 8,000th time. I'm I'm now back on the the, the, uh, JFK assassination. I really believe if I could uncover what happened with Officer JFK, D. Tippett, that'll lead me to the investigation. I'm, I'm working that angle there first. So I've been watching some of that stuff, uh, listening to that. I, Millie and I started the the uh, the Queen's Gamut, and that was really good. I want to get back on that. I haven't been able to get back on that. And I and I've been watching Fargo, and you know, and I haven't seen the poor Italian kid who's been, uh, you know, the poor kid with the Italian family, the African American kid. Yeah, he went somewhere. I don't know where the hell he is. I've lost him. But I've been I've been trying to finish that. So that that's kind of all. I, how about you? So Fargo's been great. I think Chris Rock has done a better job than with Thought Plan a Gangster. I love the nurse. I think Jesse Buckley is fantastic because she's so unhinged and so creepy. But the guy I love is not Jason Schwartzman. He's pretty good. He plays the, the main Italian gangster, but his brother, that guy Gaetano, like, that guy is unbelievable. Like I, I've never seen him anything else, but he is perfect as like this big meathead Italian ready to kick some ass. He's like the strong man that can't be defeated. He's like Rasputin. Yeah, I mean, if Tony would have had him on his crew, he wouldn't need to go over to Italy to get Furio. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, this is like this is the kind of guy he needed in the crew. You know, when he made that when he made that trade to bring Furio, was that what could that go down as one of the greatest trades of all? time. Oh like my. Tony gives her Mercedes at a $10,000 discount and he gets Furio. I mean, think about that deal. I mean, that's got to be like, that. that's going to be one of the all-time heist right there, isn't it? <laughs> that is up there with the Herschel Walker trade. No doubt, isn't it? The first time you see Furio in action, you're like, holy shit. Remember when Furio goes into that, what is it, massage parlor or nail salon just starts kicking ash? Like, oh my God. Yeah, and he, and he goes and he slaps and he slaps the wife around because she's giving him hell. And I mean, he shoots him in the foot. I mean, that was like, okay. I, I, I think you, I don't think you gave up enough. Like if he would have given away two future picks, you know, say, he would have given away Jackie Jr. and you know and somebody else like he would have underpaid. <laughs> I mean, he would have underpaid dearly if he would have given up Jackie Jr. and and one of those other kids that was in the group or you know who's the kid that got shot out in the woods? You know, uh, the two guys that that shot Chrissy. You know, I mean, if he given up those two, I mean, seriously, yeah, it would have been a hell of a deal for him. It's an unbelievable route. And just to go back to your point about JFK, I was in Dallas. You know, I, when I was at ESPN, I covered the Cotton Bowl like four years in a row. So you get tired of, like, literally you're in the same place. Obviously, Jerry's World's incredible. You're in Arlington. But as you know, you know, Texas is very spread out. The one hand, you got Dallas. The other hand, you've got Fort Worth. So I had a little bit of time and I wanted to go down to see the site of JFK's assassination. It was so unnerving to me, Mike, the fact that literally in the street, there's an 
text there. And more unnerving is like, you know, there, there's traffic coming. People, but as soon as there's a red light, people go out there and they stand exactly where JFK's head got blown off and they take selfies. If ever there was a signal, the end of Western civilization, that was it to me. Yeah, I mean, it's eerie, right? When I was working for the Niners, there used to be Wilkins Trunk Company was down there. They had they made the greatest luggage you could ever imagine. Gil Brandt got us turned on to it. And I had this old, I mean, I had this great briefcase. It was it was the best briefcase I ever had in my life. And I bought it down there at Wilkins because I was on the road all the time. And it basically was your traveling office. And you would go down there and to Dealey Plaza and to just walk. And then when you're on the sixth floor, you just ask yourself, why doesn't he shoot him when he's coming up Elm? Like he's got a direct shot right at him. You know, and then it goes all into that triangular configuration and and all that. And there's so much that's unexplained. All I do know is I was I have, you know, read enough and 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 listened to enough. I mean, Bobby Kennedy I, in this book, Bobby Kennedy is is obviously that night he he felt there was a conspiracy within the government, and his son Bobby Kennedy Jr. has since come out and said the same thing. So, where there as they say in JFK, where there's smoke. There's also a lot of fire. <laughs> Great movie. Unbelievable cast. And Newman's in that. Newman's oh. in that too. How good is Newman in that? Listen, Tommy Lee Jones. I love John Candy. I mean, that that whole cast. I mean, you look at Costner, obviously is Garrison, but that supporting cast is incredible. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones playing Clay Bertrand or Clay Shaw, you know, when he talks about this, a long Chippendale dining table when he goes through that. And that's precisely the split. I mean, he's just brilliant in that acting. It's so good. Oh, his delivery is amazing. Thanks as always for checking out the GM Shuffle. Please do support us. And once again, Mike will give out his picks Sunday morning at M. Lombardi NFL. Happy Week 10, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.